Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sty Bar, taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter, a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Monday, March 7th, 2022. And we are very excited today to be joined by Imran Ansari, a trial attorney and former prosecutor with hundreds of cases under his belt, specializing in civil litigation, personal injury, and criminal law. And he's also a legal analyst for Court TV and part-time host of the Law & Crime Network. Welcome, Imran. Thank you, Josh. Great to be here. Absolutely. Um, Today, we're going to be covering a bunch of high-profile cases making headlines across the country that I'm sure you have been following, Imran. So I know listeners are going to be eager to hear your thoughts and analysis. So we'll jump right in because the one that made huge news last week was Brett Hankison found not guilty of endangering Breonna Taylor's neighbors in wanton endangerment case. And just to kind of catch folks up on this, this is the only officer that was charged in connection with the March 2020 shooting. But the charges, most importantly, were not related to Taylor's actual death. Prosecutors called 26 witnesses over five days, arguing that Hankison shot blindly into a window from outside the apartment in the direction perpendicular to where the shots originated from. And those are the shots that were coming from inside of the apartment that officers were responding to. The defense argued that Hankison acted to defend his fellow officers in a chaotic situation. Hankison is uh, denied any wrongdoing but expressed remorse in some pretty emotional testimony. And the verdict came after three hours of deliberation. So jump right in, Imran. What are your thoughts on this verdict? Were you surprised? Josh, I wasn't surprised because of the manner and way the prosecution laid out their case before the jury. And particularly so when uh, when Brett Hankison took the stand in his own defense, took the stand and brought the jury into his shoes, brought them into his shoes so they could see his perspective Um, of that night. And now let's, you know, we have to say this was a tragic night. Breonna Taylor's life was taken. It's a tragedy. Uh, But I'm going to discuss this with you in the context of the charges that were brought against Brett Hankinson specifically. And those charges perhaps should not have been brought all together. And I'll tell you why. It's because the state didn't really have that case or the evidence to bring them across that line and prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt in terms of those three charges of wanton endangerment, Joshua, I don't think that they had it. And I think the jury saw that. And also, Josh, the manner in which the prosecution delivered their case. Uh, you had Barbara Whaley, the prosecutor uh, in that case. And, uh, you know, I never want to criticize our fellow members of the bar. We have good days in court. We have bad days in court. Uh, we, we are dealt the, the cards we are dealt with, the facts that we are dealt with. And I think that she she was really doing the best she can with her case. Um, and you felt that in her closing arguments. You felt that in her cross-examination, meaning um, I didn't see the passion there because uh, I'm not saying she's not a passionate attorney. Not at all. I think she recognized that the state's case had weaknesses and the way it was unfolding in court. Uh, she was really seeing that there was holes in the prosecution's case in terms of the wanton and endangerment charges. And that reflected in sort of the tone and the demeanor in court from the prosecution. But then you had Brett Hankinson take the stand. And I think that really said everything for that jury. She, he was able to put 
uh, the jury in that chaotic environment. And again, tragic loss of life here. Tragic loss of life that's going to have a resounding effect. And you already see the sort of uh, rejection of no-knock warrants going on in that state and across the country. But when it comes to Brett Hankinson, he brought that jury in his shoes. And I think they said, OK, state, you haven't proved the case beyond a reasonable doubt. We see this sort of chaotic totality of the circumstances, if you will, uh, the the air, uh, the perception and observations that Brett Hankinson really put uh, forth before this jury. And, and you have a unanimous verdict there, three counts and three acquittals on each yeah. of those counts. Yeah, I, I got to say, I, I, I tend to agree with the way you look at the case. And and so people really understand, you, you've alluded to this a couple of times, it is a tragic loss of life. But Hankison is not even alleged to have been the person who fired the the bullet that actually took Taylor's life. So it, right. there was never an allegation that he was involved in, in indirectly or directly causing her death. What he's charged with is that as officers were responding and they were being fired upon, he, amongst other officers, returned fire, and his fire went through the Taylor uh, apartment into the neighbor's apartment and left bullet holes there. There was some pretty uh, shocking evidence that the prosecution put forward of, I remember seeing pictures of bullet holes next to uh, bottles of shampoo in the shower, and you saw a bullet hole in the dining room table, and you can imagine the jurors, as they're watching this all unfold, is picturing themselves in that apartment saying, my God, people are living there. People are conducting their lives. They're washing their hair. They're eating their breakfast and a bullet could have taken their life. That was what he was being charged with. But you you made such an ex- excellent point. I really feel the prosecution was doing a fairly good job. But when he took the stand, his ability to put the jurors uh, into his mindset of how chaotic it was. He used the term, I thought my fellow officers were being executed. That is powerful, powerful stuff. Another thing I noticed that he did, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, is that he, at one point, turned towards the jurors and was demonstrating how he saw this silhouette uh, being outlined by the discharge of a weapon in that darkened apartment in a firing position, and he turned towards the jurors as he was demonstrating this. And talk about the jurors understanding that fog of war moment that he may have been dealing with. Do you think that's what kind of turned the tide for him? Yeah, Josh, I mean, you used the term that um, I I have been using, you know, when talking about this case, that sort of fog of war um, aspect. And here it was the fog of perhaps a completely poorly executed Uh, and lack of prep, no-knock warrant. But, you know, that's something uh, to set aside here. But let's talk about Brett Hankinson. His description of that moment, I think, had resounding effect on that jury because um, we're both former prosecutors, Josh. We've dealt with law enforcement. But, you know, I had great relationships with my detectives here with the NYPD. I was with the Brooklyn DA's office. Uh, But I would never, when they would come in and they'd been shot at and they were at a crime scene, uh, you know, uh, or, or responding to a, a horrific crime. You know, it, it, I would sit there in my office and, and I would do ride alongs and things like that. But ultimately, um, I would never be able to relate to that sort of um, on the moment uh, response, you know, and that's something that we always have to remember about law enforcement. They're put in situations uh, which are, are, you know, unfolding in split seconds. And of course, officers can make the wrong decision. But there's times when it's a you have to really look at the totality of the circumstances and wonder and ask yourself, well, were these reasonable actions or and, and in this case with Brett Hankinson, were these actions rising to the level of criminality? And the jury said no. 
Now, ec- excellent thoughts. And, and to kind of dovetail upon what you're saying, I think it's it's important for people listening to understand officers go their entire career sometimes without ever drawing their weapon, without ever unholstering their weapon. They can go there, certainly their entire careers, without ever pulling that trigger. So for them to be caught in this type of situation where, one, an officer has been shot, they're being fired upon, they're returning fire, this might be a nightmare scenario that none of those officers will ever experience again after this. So it it is incredibly uh, stressful, chaotic, and I think that, well, the jurors found, I think, that there was at least not enough evidence of any kind of criminal liability. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the um, repercussions outside of the criminal world on this. The, 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 The city of Louisville did pay Taylor's family $12 million in a settlement. And an ordinance, pardon me, was also passed by the Louisville Metro Council called Brianna's Law, uh, which banned no-knock search warrants. Explain to us a little bit what no-knock search warrants are, if you have experience with them, and why they're used at all, and what, um, what could be the repercussions of a law like this? Yeah, sure. So a no-knock search warrant would be a warrant that's been approved by a judge, signed off by a judge, um, that for various circumstances, while it be the safety of the officers or safety of others, officers do not have to announce themselves before they say, break down that door. And often you see this situation, they have a, a, a tool, a battering ram, and they'll go right in without, when they have a no-knock warrant in hand, uh, go right into the premises and execute that that warrant. Um, however, on the other hand, a announced uh, warrant, which are more routinely uh, given and signed off by judges, that they have to ask. They have to say, police, open up uh, and give an opportunity uh, before they go in forcibly. And that would be a, a difference between the knock and the no-knock. And now we see a rejection um, of the no-knock warrant because it's it's uh, it's this case, in many ways, has brought to light, Josh, um, the fact that they could lead to death of innocent people uh, they can lead to loss of life and create a dangerous situation. So we do see uh, Brianna Taylor's death, and it's a tragedy, really having a resounding effect on law and the way law enforcement is conducting themselves. And, you know, I'm talk- talking about law enforcement being in stressful situations, and we have to acknowledge that and, and uh, recognize that they're good apples, they're bad apples, there's mistakes, right? There's mistakes. Um, no, no. And But then we also see right now, uh, a resounding sort of uh, fall of the blue code of silence, if you will, and officers across the country uh, in certain cases, Derek Chauvin, Potter, being held accountable by juries uh, for their actions. If it departs a standard of care, if you will, if it departs from their training and amounts to criminal conduct. So we are seeing a change in the way law enforcement are being held accountable and the way uh, law enforcement are then ultimately changing their practices including no-knock warrants really being um, sunsetted, if you will, in law enforcement practice. Yeah. One thing to point out, and you know this because you followed this trial so closely, and I know it having followed it uh, somewhat myself, is as much as this case has been kind of become that poster child case talking about no knock warrants the police actually did knock and announce themselves in this in the execution of this warrant and they knocked several times that the fact that it woke up neighbors even the ram that they used wasn't successful on its first striking of that door so it's funny how we, we associate this case with no knock warrants and this idea of officers going in without letting any you know in the element of surprise but actually they 
had the warrant. Exactly. No. Yeah. And uh, even today on on uh, one of the networks that you were talking about, I uh, took out the the no knock aspect and just called it a raid, uh, you know, mm-hmm. or a warrant being executed, because now we hear from the testimony um, conflicting accounts. Right. But a testimony that we heard in the Hankinson trial that there was a knock uh, and there was an announcement. But regardless, regardless, before this trial, before going into this case, um, it did sp- shed the spotlight on this practice. And we've seen legislation uh, go into effect, um, banning this practice, at least uh, in that jurisdiction. Yeah, we'll have to see how that all plays out. OK, switching gears uh, pretty uh, drastically here. We're going to talk about Scott Peterson's defense appealing his conviction and claim that there was a juror who had hidden bias against him. Peterson, if we if you're any kind of a, a follower of true crime, the, the name is very familiar to you, who is now 49, was convicted in 2005 of two counts of first degree murder in the 2002 death of his life of his wife, pardon me, Lacey and of their unborn son. And he was sentenced to death where he remained for about 15 years. However, in August of 2020, his death penalty sentence was overturned. And in October of that same year, the California Supreme Court ruled that a lower court should look at his case to determine whether his guilty verdict should be overturned. Now, defense attorneys claim that a juror, Rochelle Nice, lied during jury selection when asked if she had ever been the victim of a crime. And this is really where I want your thoughts on this, Imran. She neglected to disclose that she had obtained a restraining order in 2001 against her then boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. And she also neglected to mention a fight with her ex-boyfriend, which led to his arrest. The defense alleges that Nisa's motive was to profit off of the case. And interestingly, she wrote 17 letters to Peterson while he was in jail. Uh, she co-authored a book with other jurors, and she also appeared on Dr. Oz's show. Um, what are your thoughts on a juror not disclosing kind of their full um, uh, background? And do you believe uh, her testimony that this was just an oversight rather than intentional? Yeah, Josh, I mean, you see this percolating up now in Scott Peterson at uh, his trial after all these years, but it's a, it's actually an issue that's uh, finding its way into uh, other cases right now. We've heard it in the Elaine Maxwell trial. Um, we have it in the Harvey Weinstein trial uh, here in New York. And, you know, full disclosure, uh, that appeal is being handled by my office now. Um, but, you know, that uh, juries not disclosing certain aspects about themselves, not filling in or disclosing certain things in jury questionnaires, and that has uh, resounding effects down the line because what we, you know, we're trial attorneys here. When we go in and pick a, a jury, we're looking for a fair and impartial jury, a fair and impartial jury that is going to give both sides a fair shake. So although, you know, we're not robots, human beings are not robots. They have beliefs, they have experiences and jurors are no different, you know, they, and, but to a certain extent, if there are certain biases or beliefs that would, you know, prevent them from being a fair and impartial juror. We as attorneys need to know because ultimately that may affect um, the uh, viability of a verdict um, if it's discovered down the line that this juror uh, or a juror was not forthcoming or being truthful, perhaps, with what they were putting on. And that would be the advocate juror, you know, those 
Um, you don't want a juror who's getting on a jury to, to somehow effectuate a change or, or get their voice known through a verdict. Um, and this could be the case here, you know, and this is uh, something which is now the court is looking at again. Um, did this juror uh, purposefully not uh, disclose these things on their juror questionnaire? Was there another motive to uh, be on this jury and, and uh, you know, render a verdict in a certain way? Uh, and, and more specifically, you know, again, were they forthcoming and truthful um, on the jury questionnaire and when they perhaps answered questions in court from the attorneys during jury selection and the judge? And that's going to be an issue to see uh, whether Scott Peterson is going to be afforded a new trial, whether he had a fair trial to begin with. And we await that decision, Josh. Yeah. A, a couple of thoughts I had on this is that one I realize that, you know, you, uh, sitting as a juror and you're filling out sometimes these long questionnaires and you're trying to remember everything that happened in your life. Sure, some things can get overlooked. I can understand that. But seeking a restraining order against someone is not a small process. It, it, I, I, you know, you may live a pretty dramatic life, uh, but I still think something like getting a restraining order against someone would be something that would be kind of top of mind when you're being asked to sit on a case like this, especially knowing that the case deals with the elements of domestic violence. So I'll, I'll say that, that, that I'll just kind of leave that there, that it would be surprising to me if somebody would forget something like this, especially something so important. If you are the uh, 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 lawyers for Mr. Peterson back at that time, that would be a huge issue. You would want to know about any kind of history of domestic violence that this person may have suffered to the point that they had to go into court to get a restraining order. The other uh, point I wanted to make, and I'm curious to hear how things work in New York, but I've been asked a few times that how do you prevent something like this? Like how how are you able what what could we do to fix the process so folks like this don't slip through? And I was explaining that it might be pretty shocking to some people to realize the little amount of time that attorneys are sometimes given during the voir dire process to question what's called a veneer of of folks. I've had cases that are very, very serious when I was a prosecutor um, where we might get an entire panel of people that was 45 people and the judge gave us 20 minutes. You got 20 minutes to go through everybody. Even if I wanted to speak to everyone, that's a few seconds with each individual. How can you get, you know, how can you uh, get into the depths of who that person is in that short amount of time? I'm curious how things work in New York. What was your experience there? Yeah, no, Josh, it's the same experience. You know, the judge wants to move their case. You know, the case is called for trial. You have jury selection and the judge has certain time frames. Not every judge is the same, but I've had the same experience, Josh, where a judge is looking to move jury selection they have it in their mind that they want a certain amount of jurors selected on what on day one, day two, what have you. They put you to these time constraints and you're looking at these people, you know, as much as, you know, how many years of experience did you get? Um, jury selection is arguably the most important part of a trial. You win and lose on jury selection because that's the, those are the individuals who are going to be ultimately deliberating and rendering that verdict. So, you know, you want to pick a good jury. And of course, there's never going to be a perfect jury because both sides are going to want uh, and be able to get certain people on or off based on cause or strikes or what have you. But yeah, no, you have a finite amount of time to question these jurors. And if a juror is not being forthright with what they're telling you, well, how do you know? It's unfortunately after perhaps the fact, after the trial, especially um, now with people looking to get 
uh, perhaps in the media, with social media, and they may disclose something after a trial and you suddenly hear about a juror who may have had a, a, a maybe an ulterior motive, uh, and I'm just speaking generally, to get on a, on, on a case, and you find out they may have perhaps not been uh, ultimately truthful. And you hear about jurors speak to the media after a high-profile trial. They may want to get their story out and get a book deal or something like that. Who knows? Uh, but you hear about it, and now you're, you're looking hindsight uh, and you're trying to remedy the situation as a defense attorney. And as a prosecutor, too, the prosecution doesn't want that. They've just gone through a whole trial. They didn't necessarily know that this juror uh, may have not been qualified to be on this jury. And now they're staring you know, this down uh, in the face. You know, There's one thing to have an appeal on the merits of things going on during the trial, like re rulings by the judge, objections that are not sustained that may perhaps should have been evidence coming in. But to hear that a juror uh, lied or, or perhaps was not being forthright on their questionnaire or where when you questioned them during voir dire and to have all that work as a prosecutor unraveled perhaps because of a juror who wanted to be on the case to maybe tell their story after the fact. Well, that's horrible. You know, that's a horrible thing. So, you know, there's really no way to tell uh, when you're in that courtroom, when you're put to those time limits and you're trying to get through that whole panel and trying to get a little about everyone because you don't want a juror on who you've never even talked to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, now you're seeing these issues percolate. And I think even more so now, Josh, in this information age where everyone wants to get, you know, perhaps uh, on social media or a story out, you know, um, I think it's a, more of a problem and it's going to be more of a problem as we go forward. And we're in this information age. Yeah, no, you make you make some really good points. I, I agree with you. I understand the idea of judicial economy and then wanting to move a case along. And they're deal, dealing with lawyers who, you know, love to hear themselves speak. And if they put, don't put an end to voir dire, it might go on for days and days and days. But you think about had they saved themselves a little bit of effort on the front end. And like you said, the most important part of the whole process is jury selection. And I agree with you. I don't think the prosecution wanted this any more than the defense did. They want a, a fair jury so that that verdict sticks, which could seriously be called into question here. No, absolutely, Josh. And, you know, now we're dealing with it. And uh, I'm sure those prosecutors did not think this was going to percolate up like this uh, years down the road. But now it's ultimately up to the judge in that case. And of course, Josh, you're in L.A. I'm in New York. We both have we're in cities with massive dockets, uh, you know, tons of cases that are being you know, put through the court system. And as you know, much as you want to move those cases on the ju judicial side, you know, um, in order to pick a fair and impartial jury. And sometimes I guess the judges have pressure, especially here in New York. I'm sure it's the same in L.A. to push their cases, get done with one trial, get on to the next trial. But if you speed things along to the point where you're not allowing the attorneys to do their job uh, as they feel that they should in order to get a fair trial, then things like this come back uh, to bite you. All right. Well, turning from a case that was decided some 15 odd years ago to a case that might have a verdict by the time this podcast is released, let's talk about how The Sun took the stand in the trial of the first accused Capitol rioter. Legal actions surrounding the January 6th Capitol riot are ongoing, and Guy Reffitt is the first accused in that mob uh, that stormed the Capitol. Guy Reffitt cried as his son appeared across a courtroom to testify against him. Jackson Reffitt, the son, recounted a conversation after January 6th in which his father told him that he and his sisters would be traitors if they turned him into law enforcement. 
There are questions surrounding the intent of his testimony, meaning the son. Jackson moved out of his family home soon after he reported his father to the FBI. A GoFundMe effort has raised $150,000 to support Jackson. And the assistant U.S. attorney, Risa Burkauer, asked whether he reported his father to the FBI to become famous. Last week, fellow three percenter Rocky Hardy testified that Refet said he wanted to physically remove members of Congress from the Capitol and replace them with people who would, quote, follow the Constitution. Hardy added that he considered Refet's words to be hyperbole and didn't think he would actually act upon him. The prosecution has rested their case, and we're, like I said, expecting a verdict uh, any day now. What are your thoughts, first of all, on how this case really got put together by the son uh, turning his father in and then even taking the stand to testify against him? Yeah, Josh, I mean, it has all the makings of uh, like a a made-for-TV movie, but in a political and legal sense, right? Because you have this sort of concept of the father, and it's so indicative of the way our nation is so polarized these days on the political spectrum. Uh, But you have a father... Uh, who is going uh, to the Capitol, um, who may or may not have been ever caught or, or, you know, uh, or the evidence established enough to prosecute him. And then here you have his son uh, and the daughter um, going and cooperating with the FBI, providing recordings and ultimately testifying in the court of law against their father. Um, and it's I mean, it's it's incredible because you see the family dynamic of that. Uh, and you see the family dynamic of not only just in the legal sense, you know, whether a, a son and a daughter um, uh, providing at the FBI uh, evidence against their father, uh, but on a political sense, you know, because you see a division in the family, which sort of is analogous to the division we have uh, in the nation uh, between the uh, the far uh, corners of both political parties. But here you have it playing out in a familial context. You have it playing out in court of law. Uh, and that must, you know, real drama there with a father um, watching his own son testify against him, uh, the daughter. And then now, you know, of course, the defense is taking that route, trying to point to the GoFundMe. Is there another motive for this, uh, for the son to go out there and testify against his father, provide this evidence, cooperate with the FBI? But ultimately, uh, you know, what you have is pretty striking in terms of just the uh, it's just interest value uh, and also just this family dynamic playing its uh, its way out through the courtroom um, and through a prosecution uh, that, you know, with the January 6th prosecutions uh, could be really groundbreaking. It's one of the first to really percolate up to trial. And and what a what a what a case to do that, you know, with the son, the daughter testifying against the father. I, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that, which my next question is, this is the test case, right? There are upwards of 700 prosecutions, I think, linked to this entire riot. Um, and who knows how many of those are actually going to go to trial, but they're all watching this very closely. What are your thoughts on how this turns out? Will that affect maybe a prosecute if they if they end up not being uh, prevailing here? Do you think prosecutors are going to start trying to plea bargain these things out? Or if they do prevail, do you think we'll see a lot more trials set because they're now confident in their position? Yeah, Josh. Well, you know, um, on a national scale and also a political scale, you have the January 6th committee right doing their investigation on on a sort of a, a broader you know, concept of things. But then you have all these, as you mentioned, all these cases 
really playing its way out through court. Um, this will be a test case. Um, we'll, you know, prosecutors across the country will be looking to see how this jury uh, latches on to the charges that uh, have been brought against this individual and whether it's a successful prosecution or not. And, and I think also the passage of time, though, Josh, you know, January 6th uh, was was very imminent, uh, was very fresh in everyone's mind. And I'm not saying that the prosecution will drop cases, but I think as you go on, time goes on, and as these are litigated out in the in court, uh, you may see offers given to some of these defendants that may have not been extended uh, earlier in time as the nation perhaps moves on to other matters uh, that are uh, more important, let's say, in a temporal time frame, um, and these get a little stale. But you know, we'll see how the the we'll see how this jury reacts to this. I mean, they have real courtroom drama before them in this sort of split of the family. Yeah, um, and yeah. then we'll see how other prosecutorial agencies handle their cases after this verdict. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. We'll keep a close eye on it. Okay, uh, another breaking news. This, I believe, came out today. We're talking March 7th when we're recording this. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, will not review the decision that freed Bill Cosby. The court found that a promise by a former prosecutor who was binding, the cur- was binding on the current DA to not prosecute Cosby based on statements he made during a deposition. Cosby never signed an immunity agreement. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found that even though the agreement was not in writing, and this is a quote, the principles of fundamental fairness that undergirds due process of law in our criminal system demands that the promise be enforced. So a lot of interesting stuff to to unwind here, especially from a a lawyer's perspective. And one of my first questions for you is... um, why on earth, and again, trying not to throw uh, colleagues under the, the bus here, but why on earth is this not in writing, this agreement? You're about to let your client kind of let it all hang out there, as it were, and give a deposition that by all accounts was 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 rife with all sorts of scandalous information, and you don't put this kind of immunity, I'm calling it an immunity agreement, though it's not technically that, but this agreement to not prosecute based upon what he says, allowing him to waive his Fifth Amendment rights, and none of that is recorded anywhere in writing. What is your first kind of impression on that? Yeah, no, Josh, I mean, listen, why and how? How did that happen? <laughs> you know, um, because you're, you're talking about uh, a case and allegations uh, that, uh, you know, with someone who is a very public individual, um, that would have resounding effects, you know. So if you're if, if he's going forward with a deposition testimony in a civil case and we see this all the time, uh, you know, I particularly where I have crossover between civil and, and, and uh, criminal cases all the time uh, where you see where rights of uh, a defendant will be implicated in a civil case um, if they are to testify uh, either by waiving their Fifth Amendment or by evoking it, because if you evoke the Fifth Amendment during a civil deposition, that could be lead to a negative inference in that civil case. Of course, if you testify, then that could lead to a prosecution in a criminal case or evidence against you uh, unless you have immunity. And that's what was said to be here. And if you don't paper that up, um, you know, why would you ever leave that to chance, Josh? I'm scratching my head about that uh, as you are. But, you know, ultimately, the court, the lower court saw this to be a uh, egregious uh, violation of Bill Cosby's constitutional rights. 
uh, to be compelled or, or sit to testify. And then ultimately, after that agreement was made, at least, you know, verbally, uh, to have that be used against them in a criminal case. Well, yeah, I mean, all the fair notions of, you know, even outside of constitutional questions, Josh, just between attorneys, you know, all the fair game and just professional courtesy and, and respect for one another. If you have that agreement, you know, it has to be in writing, uh, first of all. But even in this context, you know, to do that, to use that against him later on, it just is not all the equity of everything is thrown out the window. But here you have SCOTUS coming down and saying, no, you know, that we're not going to, to disturb that lower court ruling. This was unfair to Bill Cosby. This was a violation of his constitutional rights. He sat and he testified at that deposition with the expectation that it would not be used against him in a criminal matter. And lo and behold, he was ultimately indicted and prosecuted on that, uh, using that testimony. Well, SCOTUS spoke, and I agree with the ruling, yeah. You know, we had uh, in an interview in one of our previous podcasts of the lawyer who handled Cosby's case in that appeal to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Jennifer Bonjean. One of the things I wondered is why wasn't this litigated beforehand? Why wasn't those statements kept out? And she says that, yes, it was. So they had to lose. And this is something people sometimes fail to appreciate. They had to lose that ruling. A court allowed the judge allowed that statement to come in, despite all of the evidence that it may have been an immunity agreement. Then they had to sit through an entire trial. Then he had to get convicted. Then he had to go to prison before she had an opportunity to bring that up in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for then that right to be that that wrong to be righted and them to say, no, you know, fundamental fairness says that you have to. Uh, uh, honor that original promise that was made by the prior uh, DA, which I I found to be um, fascinating. The other uh, point that she made, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, is that there was no uh, agreement, but the argument was made, and I thought this was very persuasive, that we all know there must have been an agreement because there's no way someone is going to sit and give that kind of damaging testimony against themselves unless such an agreement existed. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, he's represented by counsel. He knows the stakes, arguably, because he's uh, his counsel is informing him as such. And this is a high profile matter. This is someone who uh, is, is facing the civil case but also the specter looming of criminal charges and to to, to sit and testify freely. Um, it's, it's just it's it's completely against not only a legal uh, knowledge, right? Like whether, you know, from a legal perspective, you just don't do that. A lawyer would counsel their client. No, you're not going to do that unless you have the immunity. But even um, just from a, a layman's standpoint, you kind of know you're not going to uh, put everything out there on a record in a deposition uh, unless you have some sort of uh, uh, assurance and reassurance of a safeguard there uh, that it's not going to be used against you at a later time in a c- criminal proceeding. And I think that's what happened here. Uh, and uh, ultimately, as you stated, you know, those there's those uh, instances where there's a ruling and a defendant has to sit through an entire trial before they get a verdict, an adverse verdict to them and the appeal process. And it's incredible how much uh, has to go uh, forward before that, um, let's say, uh, decision or ruling 
at the very beginning or even before trial about evidence coming in uh, is is deemed to have been improper and then thrown out on appeal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's finally reached its end now that the Supreme Court has decided not to entertain any kind of further argument on it. All right. Our last case I'd like to discuss this afternoon is Dr. Husel, uh, his murder trial. Husel was an overnight doctor at Mount Carmel West's intensive care unit. He was seen as an expert in the hospital and sedation management in the ICU. He now faces 14 counts of murder, which previously 25, but 11 counts were dismissed by a judge in January. The 14 deaths occurred over a three-year period from 2015 to 2018, and he's accused of over-prescribing pain medication, specifically fentanyl. He said that administrations of doses of fentanyl at a level that they internally believed were inappropriate and not for a legitimate medical purpose, according to the prosecution. The defense has argued that he was providing what's called comfort care to critically ill patients. And this is something important to understand, that many of these patients were expected to die. They were being taken off of uh, life support systems, and they were expected to die within days, if not moments, before he gave these, um, per, these uh, doses of fentanyl. Reportedly, there were no guidelines in the hospital system for um, sealing doses or max doses, and the hospital has since updated its guidelines in 2019 in the wake of the Husel allegations. What are your thoughts on, I know you've been following this trial, what are your thoughts on how this is playing out for the prosecution? Yeah, so the prosecution, um, they have a tough case. They have a tough case uh, but then also uh, what leaves me, um, you know, we're, we're covering this on the, the various networks, um, the live trial. But one uh, aspect of the prosecution's case that has me consistently scratching my head in terms of um, what was the motive here uh, in ter- for, for Husel. And of course, you don't have to prove motive uh, as a prosecutor, but motive always gives the jury sort of the wrap, ra- it closes the loop on the story. You have multiple people who were uh, who passed away there. Uh, the, the prosecution is claiming they passed away because Dr. Husel uh, provided them those lethal doses of fentanyl and other medications. But why? And that's something that I think the prosecution really needs to somehow explain uh, to the jury. It's a tough case. Uh, but then it also uh, begs the question um, as to why he was giving those those doses, which if you look at the evidence, Josh, um, they're looking at patients. They're looking at uh, patients being cared by all the doctors in that particular hospital. And what stands out is Dr. Husel in terms of the uh, amount, which are multiple times the usual dosage of fentanyl and other medication being given to these patients. And, and the defense with Jose Baez leading the defense team there, um, they're, they're arguing that this was comfort care, that these individuals were in a state of health, that they were uh, on their last leg, if you will. And Dr. Husel was only providing medication in order to alleviate their suffering. But uh, they're also pointing out sometimes in these, these uh, uh, in the medical records where there's a do not resuscitate, don't you know, put me on life support, things like that for various patients. Regardless of that, under the law, Dr. Husel uh, does not have the ability to make the determination, okay, I'm going to end this person's life to put him uh, or her out of the suffering. And I think that's the prosecution, to put, boil it down to a layman sort of uh, bullet point, that's what the prosecution needs to get forth before this jury. But one thing that 
um, a lot of us are, are asking is that if he was killing them, um, you know, was there any nefarious purpose? Was there Ill, any ill intent? And so far, we don't see any evidence of that. And I don't think the prosecution is going to be able to show that. But it really begs the question as to why Dr. Husel, uh would go through these actions if, in fact, he was providing lethal doses to these these patients uh, upon their death. Yeah, excellent breakdown of the case. And I think you make the most powerful point about motive. I've, I've always thought of that being such an important part of what the prosecution in this type of a case is really going to need to address. And you're right. They don't have to prove that. They have to prove intent. And there's a difference between the two. Intent is that mental element, that mens rea. Did he knowingly, was he knowingly prescribing uh, doses of, of fentanyl that he knew would hasten or cause the death of these folks, and he was doing that on purpose. So that's the mental element they have to prove. But they don't have to prove, as you pointed out, why. Why was he doing that? Why was he giving them these, these, these fatal doses of fentanyl? And the prosecution can say till they're blue in the face, we don't have to prove that, we don't have to prove that, we don't have to prove that. But jurors, as you point out, are human beings. And they're sitting there and they're all thinking, okay, maybe this was too much, but why? Why would this doctor, so highly esteemed with this long career, take it upon himself to kill people who, by the way, were likely going to die soon anyways? Or conversely, was he just giving them enough medication to make them feel comfortable while they transitioned into death? You know, another thing I I thought about, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, is that one doctor who did testify was a Dr. Eli, I believe it was, and he had some pretty um, uh, inflammatory uh, statements that he made in talking about the, the dosage of fentanyl. He said that it was enough to take down an elephant. He said that it was an astounding amount of fentanyl. And I thought to myself, okay, but the other doctors knew he was giving these amount, this amount of fentanyl. If it, that is such a shocking amount of fentanyl, why wasn't he accused on patient number one? But this went on for three years through 25 different people initially, and now we're down to 14. And it begs the question, is this art or science when it comes to the practice of this type of medicine? And was he maybe prescribing more than some doctors might, but not to the extent that they thought it was so egregious that he should have been charged with a crime immediately? And that's this delicate kind of argument that the prosecution is trying to make. And I don't know if they're making it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, Josh, I 100% agree. That was a piece of testimony from Dr. Wes Ely that really struck out to me, too, uh, that, uh, that analogy with the, the elephant or, you know, and what, uh, you know, this is not a case. This is all documented, meaning the amount he's injecting them with um, or prescribing them with or administering them um, is, is documented. This wasn't something where uh, Dr. Husel was sneaking into the room and the cover of darkness and injecting these patients in, you know, in, in the dark with, with some, uh, you know, syringe that he was hiding and no one knew. Um, this was all documented. And quite frankly, someone who is, is murdering someone uh, is, is not allowing themselves to be documented uh, continuously. Um, and it begs the question, is this a case... Uh, that belongs as uh, in criminal court uh, and with criminal charges, um, or is this more a case of medical malpractice because uh, of someone who made decisions about administering this amount of fentanyl and other medication, uh, but maybe did so negligently or their actions departed from the standard of care in the medical community because no other doctors in that hospital was do- were doing so. And again, yet you pointed out that there was no real guideline 
uh, for these physicians in that hospital at that time while Husel was doing it. Uh, and it was almost that uh, discretionary to that doctor. Um, so again, is this a case that is uh, criminal or is it something which is just multiple counts perhaps uh, of, of ma medical malpractice? And I'm saying that across just hypothetically, uh, you know, um, in terms of this fact pattern. And ultimately the prosecution is gonna have to sell that to the jury uh, that this was criminal, uh, a criminal act. And you talked about the mens rea uh, and really tying that mens rea, the state of mind, uh, the intent of Dr. Husel with the actus reus, which was the act of administrating that amount of fentanyl medication. And what did that rise to criminal conduct? I think the defense is arguing and you see the defense team um, sort of using that uh, medical malpractice uh, terminology in many ways and talking about causation, highlighting the fact that these uh, patients were on um, uh, sort of their last leg and was the fentanyl the actual cause of death and was, you know, all these questions that are, are being put out there by the defense on cross-examination, all sort of whittling away at the prosecution's case and their ability to prove murder on multiple counts beyond a reasonable doubt. But ultimately, we're going to have to see and wait to see how it all plays out, Josh, uh, yeah. and when the jury renders their verdict after all the evidence is presented. Yeah, it's, well, all excellent points. It's a really fascinating case. You don't see this type of prosecution very often, and, and I'm, I'm, we're going to stay tuned to find out what the verdict is. Imran, thank you so much for coming on this week. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Sure. Well, they could go to my law firm website. It's www.idalalaw, A-I-D-A-L-A-L-A-W, all one word, dot com. That's my law firm website. Uh, or I'm on Instagram uh, and social media, and I'm at, I'm at Imran Ansari ESQ. That's my, my uh, Instagram handle. It's my Twitter handle. Um, and you can find me on social media there. Or... Uh, you could even call me if you want uh, at the office, 212-486-0011. Uh, not to sound like an ad here, Josh, but those are all my uh, ways to contact me if you want to find me. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>